So this morning is Sunday. It is April 8th. It is Easter Sunday. Our message this morning, of course, has to do with the resurrection. But the title is The Hope. Saints, those of you that feel called to ministry in this place, that have wondered about what you will preach and teach and why God brought you here, this is a message you don't just need to hear today and be entertained by. This is a message that you need to learn. You need to absorb and be able to give out to others in the unique way that God has called you to. I encourage you, this is one you should take notes. If you don't take notes, this is one you should listen intently to. This is the message that Christians must learn and absorb. And I have never been more convinced than when I stand behind the pulpit this morning that the body of Christ greatly lacks this message. Every Easter Sunday, people begin to talk about the resurrection. And sadly, it's usually a yearly event. I sat in a Starbucks this morning because my regular coffee house was closed for Easter, and I'm glad they were. And a preacher that I've often had interaction with tracked me down. He said, hey, what are you preaching about this morning? You know, and I had kind of a you-first attitude. <laughs> but he made me go first, and I began to share with him some things in the Word, and he got excited, and I was happy, and we began to rejoice. And then I got deathly silent. He began to explain to me that his topic this morning is that the abundant life now message is wrong. That there is no real hope on this earth. That that is misplaced. That it is not until we enter into the heavenly kingdom that we find a truly abundant life. That everything is there and then and not now. He went on to tell me how crazy charismatic preachers are. That was the only point I could agree with him on. This charismatic zoo that I live in is full of lots of nuts and flakes. But it is also full of truth. And friends, we need to learn to chew up the meat and spit out the bones. As this gentleman was lecturing me on why this life has no hope and all of the hope is in a place called heaven, I couldn't help it. I began to type and search. I want you to hear this. I want you to listen. I had planned to trap you into this today, and I'm not going to do it. I just love you. I'm going to tell you. I was going to write on the board, 0 to 50, 50 to 100, 100 to 500, 500 to 1,000, ask you to choose which category best represented the number of times that the Bible says the words, go to heaven. Saints, the answer would be none of the above. I searched carefully this morning as this gentleman began to tell me the hope of Christianity was not at all in this life. It was all in a place somewhere else, far, far away, for the words, go to heaven. Now I happen to have an NIV Bible. Some call it the non-inspired version. This gentleman's one of those. So as I searched the NIV, I found that the words, go to heaven, do not appear anywhere in the NIV Bible. I looked over at his Bible and I saw that it was a King Jimmy. That's King James translation, Eric's rendering. And in the King Jimmy, there is no phrase that says, go to heaven. I said, well, they revised that many times from 1611 until now, perhaps in the new King Jimmy. No phrase in the new King Jimmy that says, go to heaven. So I said, well, I know scholars everywhere read the New American Standard Bible. Such a literal translation. Surely the phrase, go to heaven, appears in the New American Standard Bible. Much to our chagrin, it does not. So I said, you know, there's one translation out there that I could lean on, right? 
I mean, they have taken the Greek and they have taken the Hebrew and they have worked it into the vernacular of the people. So it, it has to be there, right? The Living Translation. It is not in the New Living Translation. Saints, do you think this would surprise most Christians? That the words, go to heaven, not anywhere in any modern English translation or archaic English translation. Are you surprised? This was never the hope of Christianity. It is not the hope of Christianity today to go to heaven. The hope of Christianity is that heaven's kingdom is being realized on the earth and that it is headed this way. Many times when we don't know what to do with a controversial doctrine, churches have split all over the planet today over the way that we baptize, the manner, the wording, all of those things. And I want to be honest with you. If you want to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I will do it happily. If you want to be baptized in the name of Jesus, I will also do it happily. So, Eric, you just yield to any wind of doctrine. No. I heard Jesus' words to go forth and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then I looked in the book of Acts and I found out that they only baptized in the name of Jesus. It's a reasonable conclusion then to say they understood Jesus' words the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be fulfilled in the words, Jesus. To me, it's an either-or situation. If it's not for you, please don't throw your hymnals at me. That's why I didn't give you hymnals today. But I look in the book of Acts, the history book of the church, to see what did the early church practice? What did they preach? What did they teach? I've heard some call this the primitive church. Friends, they have that backwards. What we have today is barely a stepchild of a stepchild of a stepchild of Christianity. It has been so Hellenized, emphasis on the first four letters, that it barely resembles the original thing. We teach constantly in this church about Hebraic roots, and today will be no different. Open with me to Matthew 28. This, this will fulfill my obligation to cover the traditional Easter message right here. I'm going to read you Matthew 28. Then I'm going to teach you what I want you to know. Is that fair? Yeah. <laughs> well, if it's not, you're still trapped for at least an hour. There you go. Charlotte beat you all there. Come on, are you there? In Matthew 28, we're going to pick up in the first verse, but I want to tell you, there are a couple men who buried Jesus. Those of you who are Bible scholars in here would know that Nicodemus went with Joseph of Arimathea. Everybody remembers from the Gospel of that Nicodemus is the one who had the conversation with Jesus about you must be born again. Do you remember that he held a position in Israel? Come on, saints, you can answer me. What was Nicodemus? Help me. A Pharisee. Very good. Matthew whispered it in the back. I'm very proud of y'all. Y'all can answer me. I'll get my feelings hurt here. What you may not have known, because only one gospel records it, is that Joseph of Arimathea was also a member of the ruling council. If you have ever been subject to the idea that all the Jews rejected Jesus, I want you to know that is completely founded in ignorance. The reason it is completely founded in ignorance is the book that you have that tells you about Jesus was written by Jews. The people who buried Jesus were Jews. The people who found Jesus' tomb empty were Jews. And yes, saints, Jesus was a Jew. Don't tell me that all the Jews rejected Jesus. This is ignorance. And it's ignorance based on a rendering in John that says the Jews did this and the Jews did that. And it is speaking of Jewish leadership. Jesus was immensely popular among the Jews. 
They loved Him. And they were heartbroken because they did not understand God's purpose in His life. Should that surprise you? Look around at American Christianity. They're looking for gold dust on the floor, barking like dogs, or sitting like dead men in pews, saying that they honor God. Are we so different? Sometimes people don't understand the purpose of God. So God raises up churches full of pastors, teachers, prophets, and evangelists. Oh, there's a problem. We've cut out all of those except two. To teach people the true foundations and doctrines of God's Word. There is nothing that you need to buy an extra biblical book to truly understand. If you will spend your life, spend your money, your time, investing yourself in this book, it will make you wise in every situation. The reason we read everything else is because we want the cliff notes. And we don't want the burden of having to make decisions for ourselves. You'll not be alleviated of such burden in this place. My goal is to put you squarely between the crosshairs of the faith this morning and ask you, where is your hope? Our hope is firmly to be placed in one thing. In Matthew 28, we find the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and then a description of a tomb being sealed. This was the anti-theft device of the day. You know the little bar we put on our steering wheels in our cars? This was the best they could do. They put a very large rock over a tomb where Jesus was and they sealed it with a wax seal and they put two guards in front of it. Everything they could do to keep the Jew on ice. Let's pick up in Matthew 28, 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as He said, come and see the place where He lay. Why was the stone rolled back, my friends? It was not to let Jesus out. It was to let you see in. I encourage you this morning that what our church is doing, what the members of this church are doing for each other in our own lives is rolling back the stone that most people raise as a facade in front of their life. Letting you see us, who we really are, so that you might see the place where Jesus' power rests. None of us are perfect. None of us even get close to perfection. But it is our goal. And we are letting you into our lives, into the closest circle that we have, giving you the opportunity to see the power of God at work where otherwise there would be death and decay. Come and see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see Him now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. It's an interesting thing when you meet the power of God. There is some fear because you know it will require change in you. You know that there's something about you that doesn't quite measure up. Unless, of course, you've been raised in church all of your life, then you've learned to lay down right next to the fire and ignore its glory. How sad. I'll take people radically born again over those raised in church any day, unless, of course, it was a real church. I'm not trying to be critical of all the churches around us. There are many powerful powerhouses on this earth 
all with different messages as unique as the fingers on your hand. But in large part, what we have called Christianity is so weak and so dead, it has served no purpose other than to inoculate you from getting the real thing. This is sad. It is very sad that we call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves leaders in Christianity and brag about our church memberships and yet don't understand what Hebrews 6 calls the elementary teachings of the faith. With all of my heart, I hope to impart to you something today. It was given to me freely, and I give it to you freely today. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, He said. They came to Him, clasped His feet, and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. He's always saying that. (laughs) Nobody ever admits to being afraid. And it is the biggest motivator in most people's lives. I would venture to say all people's lives. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. We go through a little period here where the Gospels record a lie that began to spread among the Jews about where Jesus was, and then we get to something called the Great Commission. I want to read this to you, and I want you to hear the proximity. See in your hearts that they were commissioned to preach immediately after witnessing something. Verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them... What are those next words, saints? To obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Many, many events are crammed in between the time that Jesus rose from the dead and the Great Commission. You can read the other Gospels and you see events like the road to Emmaus. You see discussions where Jesus appears as a gardener. You see Jesus walking through a wall and appearing to His disciples. You see all kind of other events and yet Matthew skips all of them. He goes straight from the resurrection to them preaching. There is a reason for this, saints. The early church preached one message. And I want you to know, the reason I went through all of the garbage about the phrase, go to heaven, not appearing in the Bible, is because that is not the message they preached. All over this Americanized Christianity, what you hear on a Sunday morning is, pray a sinner's prayer, believe with me, and go to heaven. This is not the hope of Christianity. This is not what people were saved for. It is not the hope that the church fought and died for. It is not what Paul was on trial for. Now let me go ahead and give you my disclaimer so you don't tune me out now. I get this question every time I bring this up and this antsy, nervous feeling. Wait, we go to heaven, don't we? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, period, bar none. But when Jesus returns, He returns with those who fell asleep in Him. Some place in the distance called heaven is not your home. The Bible teaches that you will inherit this earth and that it will be called the kingdom of God. It is that message that I intend to proclaim to you today. And I stand on good ground. The foundation of the twelve apostles. It is all that they preached. What we see right here is a list that we're going to work through quickly. That's a lot of Scripture, isn't it? We're going to work through it just by turning a page and reading you something on almost every page in the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts 1, the history book of the church, and we will see what they preached. Did you hear earlier that 
Mary went to the eleven apostles. That's not usually how you hear that said, is it? Usually hear twelve. Oops, one didn't make it. I know you may have been taught that doesn't happen, but the Scripture says otherwise. One didn't make it, and yet there was work to be done. When he did not fulfill his obligation to the fact that he had to raise up another, that's where we pick up in Acts. We'll be in one twenty-one. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of His resurrection. When choosing an apostle, He had to be with them the entire time, but what did He become a witness of? The resurrection. Not Jesus' miracles, although that's important. Not even necessarily the words that Jesus taught. It says He would become a witness of the resurrection. This is because everything that Jesus said, taught, and did became valid only when He was raised from the dead. Now, it was a true statement before it was proven true. I'm not arguing that. But if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, Paul makes it very clear. We're to be pitied more than all men. This is one event in human history that stands out among all others, above all others. And they chose somebody who would be a witness of that fact. The next one's in Acts 2, starting in the 31st verse. This is Peter preaching his very first sermon. Seeing what was... Let's just start in 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised him, raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact, exalting, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, which He has poured out now, which you see and hear. Peter is testifying to the resurrection of Christ as the most important event in his message. Turn with me to the fourth chapter. Look what these apostles are being accused of in the second verse. This is the Sanhedrin. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. This is interesting. Now we're not just saying Jesus resurrected, but what they were teaching the people is in Jesus, you too will resurrect. How interesting is that? The message of the early church was that Jesus raised and has the power and the authority to cause you to raise. We're going to look at this further, but I want you to see the overwhelming testimony in the book of Acts. Look at the 33rd verse of the 4th chapter. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. What did they testify to? The resurrection. Skip with me to the 17th chapter. Tell me when you're there. Did you know that the resurrection is mentioned by name, not by euphemism, not by the raising or anything else. The actual word resurrection appears more than ten times in the book of Acts. 
in the 15th chapter of Corinthians where Paul says, I want to proclaim to you the gospel that I preach everywhere in every church. He mentions it no less than five times by name. This doesn't count all of the times he speaks of the raising of the dead. He testified and taught about the resurrection of Jesus and our being raised in Him. In fact, Paul refused to call Christian death, death. He simply says your body falls asleep while your spirit goes to be with God. And when He comes back, your spirit will rejoin your body and you will be resurrected. This is the hope of Christianity. Look when Paul is in Athens. He's teaching people there. And in the 17th chapter and the 18th verse, is that 18th verse? A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. When Paul got to Athens, no longer just in a Jewish city, what did he preach? The resurrection. A young lady caught this message somewhere in Lafayette, Louisiana. A week later, she came back with a yellow binder filled with more than 20 pages of Scriptures about the resurrection. How many times when you take a Bible concordance can you find the words, Go to heaven? A giant zero. But somebody who had been Christian a couple weeks can find the word resurrection in the Bible enough to fill up a yellow binder. The message settled in her and her life has never been the same. Since we need to examine what we've accepted as common Christianity. You're being so critical. I'm not being critical of anything that the Word does not teach. What I'm trying to say is we need to be very careful where we take our stand. Today, popular prophecy teachers say the hope of the church is the rapture. Then why does the Bible not say that? Why is that Word not even in the Bible? Well, Eric, if you understand the Greek and you understand the Hebrew and you understand the Latin, then why is it not in this book? Paul did not stand on trial for the rapture. He stood on t- trial for the resurrection. Say, so, well, what I'm calling the rapture is the resurrection. Then use its biblical name. Why must we fight over doctrinal terms? Why can we not dig in the Word and see what they called it, what they said and how they practiced it, and simply imitate them? This is Easter Sunday. This day is not really Easter, by the way. Easter's the name of a foreign god that when the church got Hellenized, we just named the Feast of First Fruits Easter. Wow. How sad is that? How would you like somebody to tell your family history, right? They're talking about Sidney Piro and Matthew Piro and Jean Piro and how many ever Piros there were. But they said, you know, I don't like the name Piro. So I think we're going to pronounce it Kirkwood. Sounds more good to my people, right? We've changed all of the Jewish names. We've changed the names of the feast of their heroes. We've stripped Christianity of all Jewish terms in Judaism. And yet we claim to be standing on the Word of God. The cry of the Protestant Reformation was, Sola Scriptura! We stood and fought against the Roman Empire for the Word and the Word alone. And no sooner did we become free and form our own little factions did we create doctrines and myths that do not occur in the Word. Yeah, we've got two amens on that one because the rest of us are still sitting here going, oh God, that can't be true, can it? No, I know. Somebody turned this book around and said, show me where we go to heaven. Well, you see, uh, well, uh, uh, 
Let me talk to my pastor. That doesn't feel familiar to you? Saints, we better dig in this word. You in the 17th chapter of Acts? Look uh, at the 32nd verse. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered. What was Paul preaching to them? The resurrection of the dead. In fact, he goes so far as to say, God, among all the people on the earth, appointed one man to be the judge of all men. And he proved this by raising him from the dead. This was the gospel that Paul preached. Why did he not go to the Athenians and say, Hey, 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 guys, just believe on Jesus and go to heaven. Because this was a Greek myth that entered later. Let's get the disclaimer back out there so you aren't mad at me. If you die this moment, I hope you don't. It would be ugly in the church. Hopefully somebody will stretch forward and pray for you and raise you. Don't know whether... I hope so. Mandy will. We'll call Yvette from Lafayette. She has practiced doing it. You teach her this message. She goes in finds somebody giving her grandfather the last rites. She threw him out of the hospital. Went and prayed for her grandfather. Got him up out of the bed and took him home later that week in her own car. Amazing when you get the right message what happens. She said, this thing is about the power of life over death. It is not about inheriting some planet somewhere. Do you know how hard it was to restrain myself with that pastor this morning? God made me a younger preacher than most. He deprived me on purpose of the penalty that most wear so proudly on their wall. And I know why. It's barely possible to constrain me now in my zeal. If I had all of those things that other men had, it would be impossible. And very soon I would be very full of myself. Praise God that He does what it takes to keep us humble. I often have wondered, Lord, why are people not shouting this message from the rooftops? And then I read the words and see that the message has always been hidden from the masses. This is God's means of discerning your heart. But saints, that says something about you here today, doesn't it? Jesus turned to a very small group of people in Israel and said, Blessed are you. The secrets of the kingdom of God are being made known to you. Amen. Flip with me to the 23rd chapter. We'll leave this line of thought soon, but I have saved the very best for the last three Scriptures. Yeah, there you go, brother, there. The 23rd chapter, the 6th verse. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee. Oh, that's news to a lot of Christians. He didn't say, I was a Pharisee, did he? He said, I am a Pharisee. But Paul was a Christian. Pharisees were bad Jews. Wow. Then why are we so many years after the resurrection and Paul says, I am a Pharisee? Well, that Paul, crafty fellow that he was, he just did this to divide the group. That's what I was taught. Doesn't that make Paul a liar? I'd rather the church that taught me that be the liar than Paul. Because if we can't trust him, what do we do with the two-thirds of the New Testament he gave us? My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Why was Paul on trial? He had one hope, the resurrection of the dead. How interesting is that? Look at the the 24th chapter, 14th verse. That was Paul before the Sanhedrin. Now we have Paul before Felix. 14th verse. However, I admit 
that I worship the God of our fathers. Who is our there? The Jewish people, Israel. I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way. Talked to you about that last week. Which they call a sect. He didn't consider it a sect. They called it a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law. When is the last time you heard that in church? Paul believed everything that agreed with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men. Who are these men? His Jewish accusers. Paul had the same hope that his Jewish accusers had. That there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God. Turn with me to Acts 26. Saints, when you want to know how the apostles interpreted Jesus' words, when you want to know what it is they taught, the history book of the church is not a bad place to turn. And if when you see them speaking publicly about Jesus, they're being persecuted for testifying about the resurrection of the dead found in Jesus. If you fall on trial before three different governmental officials saying, the only reason I stand before you accused today is because I have a hope that there will be a resurrection then why would we take this gospel and say, Paul preached the glorious appearing of Jesus to take us to heaven? He never said that. Why would you put the words in his mouth? Now, I ally myself with whoever I think agrees with the word on any particular point, and I don't much care what they think about other points. Does that make sense? <laughs> if somebody has a nugget of truth, I will clean that nugget. If the other two-thirds of what they have is wrong, I'll just dismiss that two-thirds. Some of the very same people that would be in contention with me over this point, I agree with on every other point. I love that Christianity claims truth wherever it finds it. If Gandhi said it and it's true, that doesn't make Christianity less. It makes it bigger. <laughs> it means even pagans can hear from God about some things. We need to quit being scared of everything that falls outside of the box we put God in. I know we've reduced this thing to a nursery rhyme, right? A little white track with three lines on it. Do this insurance. Friends, Paul struggled and fought to attain a better resurrection. He said, it's not enough for me that I'm going to resurrect on that day. I want to resurrect with some standing. He said, these light and momentary troubles are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. And when he talks about the glory that will be revealed, it was not going to heaven. It was heaven coming to him and being granted a glorified body. But I will show you this in the words of Jesus. First, I want to read you this. Acts 26, verse 5. They have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing. By the way, this is Paul before Agrippa. That according to the strictest sect of our religion, not their religion, not a religion Paul used to hold to, our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul is confounded as he stands before this guy who is supposed to be a Jewish king. And he says, why? 
Why would anybody think it's strange that God raises the dead? This is the hope that all of Israel has, who you're supposed to be the king of, Agrippa, you liar and charlatan. Why would this be strange? And yet this message is very strange to the American church because we have watered it down to the lowest possible common denominator and said, let's just all agree we're going to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. What is worse? Because of the Hellenistic influence that taught us everything that is temporal, the sinful and yucky, everything, it gave rise to the idea that anything that was holy or pure had to be spiritual, some Casper-like shimmering ghost around you. So we would leave this very temporal earth behind that is dirty and yucky and go to a very spiritual place. The Bible teaches us that in only six days God created this earth. And on every day He said it was good. And on the day He put a man here who would blow it big time, He said, oh, very good. What right do we have then to call it yucky and ugly and sinful? A man told me this morning he couldn't wait to leave this stinking earth behind. I thought, oh, well, there's a mature biblical view, my friend. The whole Bible is about the renovation of the earth and it starts in you. When we say that God has caused you to become a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, all things are becoming new. That's 2 Corinthians 5.16. You teach it to most new Christians. What happens in you happens in the very earth itself. When you became a new Christian, did you get a brand new body? Because I didn't. I got gypped on that. It's a hope I'm still waiting for. This very earth will be renewed and the Bible teaches so. But rather than hear me talk about it, let's find out where did the Jews get this hope? Where did it come from? Does anybody have a guess? The Tanakh, the Torah, the 39 books of the Old Testament that are so old that nobody in our New Testament churches reads them. How sad. Unless it's in the Missalette. Then you might read a line. No? Not even then? Y'all don't have Missalettes. I forget. I'm not in Louisiana anymore. In Luke 24:27, by the way, Matt talked about the road to Emmaus during worship. Jesus began to explain to these guys. He said, He started with Moses, that's the Torah, and then moved through all of the prophets explaining that Jesus must die and resurrect. Isn't that amazing? Jesus started with the books of Moses and went all the way through the prophets explaining that there must be a resurrection. You do a careful word search. You will not find the word Yeshua in the Older Testament. So how is it that this is something that can be explained from Moses all the way through the prophets? So, well, it can't. Then how did Jesus do it? Well, he's Jesus. <laughs> same book Paul preached from. Same book Peter preached from. Same book all of them preached from. How did they do it? Much of it is through the ministry of shadow and type. We are supposed to discern from God's promises and what he put his people through what would occur. And friends, sometimes it's blatantly obvious. You know when that is? When you're looking in the rearview mirror after the events have occurred. But when trying to look forward, it's a bit of a fog. You need to have mercy for our brothers that didn't understand this in the first century. I would venture to say, you wouldn't have either. Mm. Let's go to Genesis. Y'all knew I'd get there eventually, didn't you? I didn't know it would take me 45 minutes. I've preached on Genesis enough to just tell you this. In fact, probably turning there is an irrelevant 
gesture, but in Genesis 2.15, we have a problem. The problem is that God says if you eat this, you die. (laughs) Doctors tell us the same thing. We don't listen to them either, do we? Right? Big Mac every day? It doesn't keep the doctor away, does it? You eat this, you die. That was the problem. What did man do? Do I need to read you the story? What did man do? Ate it. God said don't. Man did. Right? That's a big problem. What did God say would happen if man ate of it? He would die. The first problem that mankind has ever faced is death. Right? We could call it the death problem. Would that be fair enough? The first enemy to be introduced on the scene as revealed by God for mankind is death. Well, in Genesis 3, we have a solution. Starting in the 16th verse. Now, starting in the uh, 14th verse. The Lord God said to the serpent, this is the agent of the enemy here, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity. I've been working hard to say that word for years. It means warfare. I will put warfare between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring, will crush your head. That word is also seed. Incidentally, Paul later says, seed, not seeds, meaning one person. Isn't that interesting? He applies it to a different scripture, but it's equally applicable here. I will put warfare between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is one of the first prophecies that speaks of the very power that instituted or that revealed death in mankind because of disobedience being crushed. But the person who crushed it would suffer some himself. Jesus started with the books of Moses and worked all the way through the Older Testament explaining to those guys on the road to Emmaus that the Christ would have to suffer before glory would be revealed in Him. If you had to do that in any ten books, how well would you do? Saints, it's time to quit playing with Christianity. It's time to learn. If I tore the New Testament out of your Bible, how much Jesus could you share? Remember, for the first 200 years, the church didn't really have a New Testament. How handicapped would you feel? Let's go a step further. If you couldn't call your pastor, or you couldn't grab the latest Prayer of Jabez-type book off of Walmart shelf, how would you share Jesus at all? It's time for us to get beyond the surface. It's time for us to get invested in us the same deposit that God put in His apostles because it's the kind that bears fruit. They taught about the resurrection. There's this race that begins at this point in Saints, this is something you need to know about. If it is told to a serpent, whoa, somebody's going to come out of this woman who's going to crush you, and you were the power that had used the serpent like a puppet to do your will. He gets blamed for it, but you were the master. You'd want to destroy everything that came from the woman, wouldn't you? Have we never seen that in history? Did a Pharaoh hear... Did a Pharaoh hear, wow, there's going to be a deliverer in Egypt? What did he do? Kill the babies. Did we have a wicked Jewish king in Israel who heard that there might be a Messiah coming? I heard this from some magi, right? What did he do? Kill all the kids. Well, the first time this promise was given, the response was the woman had a child, then had another child. Very, very happy, right? We got Cain and Abel. What happened? He used one to kill the other one. 
So far, the enemy's doing good. Doesn't look like God's seed's doing very well. But there was another, a righteous one, named Seth. Know very little about him. We just know he was righteous. As time goes by, what we see in mankind is a history of failure. The promises of God remain, but there is a consistent pattern of failure. Every time we have a potential candidate on the scene, he's found to have giant flaws. Oh, little things like, hey, he's got a heart after God, but he also likes to commit adultery. Just a small thing, right? Giant, huge, mortal wounds. Every candidate of somebody that could be a Messiah found to be totally invalid. You know about Cain and Abel. How about the next generation of really righteous men? There's a guy named Enoch who brings revival to the earth. But what about all the other people? There are these guys, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. We start the whole race over with them. But in that generation, what happens? Yeah, Ham gets cursed. That's right. In every generation, those who are supposed to be the men of God are shown to be utterly full of weakness. And yet God can use weak vessels to do amazing things. How encouraging is that? Even when we get to the time of Elijah. I don't have time to read you this so that I won't. But just for fun, write down a scripture for me. 2 Kings 13.21 We get to the times of Elijah. Elijah, a mighty prophet. What is Elijah best known for? Calls down fire from heaven. I mean, how awesome. Tell me, young man, wouldn't you want to do that? Fire from heaven. Who wouldn't? He does seven major miracles in his lifetime. I mean, you count them, you can chart them, you can put them on the board, and on another message I might. He has a successor. The successor is Elisha. Spelled just like Elisha, don't let that bother you. They didn't speak English. Elijah, with the S, received twice what Elijah did. God said, hey, he's going to get a double portion. If you had to receive twice, My math's never been very good. Mom, sorry, she's a math teacher. How would you multiply that out? That would be 2 times 7 is... Okay, Charlotte and Mandy are awake. 2 times 7 is... So how many miracles do you think Elijah did in his lifetime? Come on now. 14? 14? 2 times 7, 14? That's wrong. That's wrong. Yeah, David's been in church before. In 2 Kings... 13.21, we find the answer. He did 13 in his lifetime, and yet the promise of God remains. He looks like a failure, but the promise of God remains. These guys are being raided by Moabite raiders, and so they're digging a grave to hide some stuff in, and they throw a dead body into it. It just happened to be Elisha's grave. And when that dead body touched Elisha's bones, it came back to life. How on earth did Jesus or the apostles share from Moses and the prophets that the Christ would suffer and then be revealed in glory? Through stories just like that, the promise of God lingers. It looks like it may not come about in your lifetime, but even if it takes a resurrection from the dead, God will do what He promised. Through stories just like this, earnest seekers of the Word who are asking God for help, or else they could just go to their local religious institution and say, hey, hey, please tell me, great sir, what's the minimum to be saved? What's the very least I can do for God and skate by without hell burning my backside? Because I'm interested in saving that, and that's it. This is the environment we live in. But what will you do? What a good question. There was a hope 
Never is it pronounced better or more beautifully to me than in Isaiah 25. So turn there. Are you all still awake? You still with me or are you mad at me? Isaiah 25. We're going to start in the sixth verse. Tell me when you were there. Come on now. Isaiah. Isaiah 25 and the sixth verse. So, saints, are we there? Saints, are we there? On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all the peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers the nations, all nations, He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of His people from all of the earth. All of the prophets spoke in some way or another of a day when death would no longer, the first problem on mankind, would no longer have dominion on man. So what does He mean, the disgrace from God's people? You ever been so sick you f***ed up on yourself? You ever been in a hospital and had to work with bedpans? You ever been in a nursing home and seen somebody you loved that was a tower of strength in this bag of flesh? Really recognizable as a human being. Death is reigning over mankind. But we have a hope. There is a mountain in Israel where on that mountain we will sit and feast in bodies that will never die. I'm sorry it hurts your doctrine. We'll drink wine that has specifically been aged. It's okay if you wait till then, though. And the disgrace from God's people will be wiped away. This is the hope of all mankind, that the first problem that came on man will be alleviated. We see it beautifully displayed, and Pero preached about it, so I didn't in Genesis. 22, where a promised son goes up on a mountain and his life is being offered. And the angel of the Lord stops and says, no, 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 don't do this. Now I know don't withhold your son, your one and only. That phrase is only begotten. Son, from me. It says, on this mountain the Lord will provide. Abraham named that mountain. And he said, the mountain is called, on this mountain I will provide. Not I did provide, I will provide. That region is Moriah. It is where Golgotha was said to be. It is the same region that Jesus was crucified. It's the same region that He returns when death is completely destroyed. There was one hope in the Jewish faith that the bondage to decay would end. What a frustrating thing to wait for, though. Turn with me to John 5. We're going to hurry now. Y'all remember that the Jews took census sometimes? There's a decent message on the internet preached by some young dumb guy who heard from God. You ought to read it. You ought to listen to it. It's called the census. In John 5, we have a census-like situation. You'll see what I mean in just a minute. Starting in the 19th verse. Y'all there? Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. 
Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. What does the Son give? Life in the place of death. Life. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Now, it's interesting. We've taken that word eternal life and we've defined it. We've defined it as on another planet in heaven, somewhere in a mythical place called the kingdom of God. You read it in context in John 5 and 6, and he's speaking of being raised from the dead here on this earth as eternal life. But more than that, he used a very Jewish concept. You will cross over. The Jews had a word for the crossing over. It's the same word they used in census. What would happen is all Israel had to get on one side of the congregation. They had to show up with some silver that was the purchase price for their redemption. And once they paid the silver, they could cross over from the side called death to the side called the community of the living. Jesus is saying, if you listen to My Word, you will be crossing over from death, which is what Adam gave you, to the life that I will give you. This is why all of Christianity hinges on Jesus' ability to raise Himself from the dead. How many of you would go to a doctor to cure your bad eyesight if he was blind? I went to an optometrist one time in this very town. He charged me way too much money and did way too little. But I will never forget he couldn't read the dials on his little machine. That made me kind of nervous. If Jesus couldn't raise himself from the dead, how on earth could you trust him to pull you out from the same problem? You want to go see a debt counselor, right? You want to go talk to a financial wizard, except he's in bankruptcy himself. See a mighty chef, somebody who goes bam all the time, whatever that guy does. But he's never sold any of his own food because it's putrid. Would you do it? The promises Jesus gave us hinge. What proves he's the offspring of the woman that would bring life to the world is his own ability to do that. I can't help but read this a little bit, so we're going to do it. I tell you the truth, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What do you mean a time is coming? And has Can it be both? Friends, the moment you heard the Word of God, you're leaving your grave clothes behind and following His words of life destined to be counted among the living, but you are still crossing over. You're just credited. That is, the time has now come. What is the time is coming? There may be a day when your body is struck down by this enemy of mankind and it will sleep in the dirt while you're in the presence of God. But what God did for Jesus, through Jesus, He will do for you. We are not convinced our bodies will decay forever. He will raise them at the last day. And this is what He calls eternal life. Eternal life is on the earth, friends. Turn with me to John 6. I cut about 40 verses out of that for you. Do y'all feel good or bad about that? Don't answer that. In John 6, 
Looking at verse 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. What is the will of God? That you be raised up at the last day. This is a reference to the resurrection. Why is the will of God not that He snatch you away into some heavenly place on some other planet where you can fish beside a jukebox when you've died? Because God's not into country music, apparently. Post-Reformation, they didn't have very many choices, saints. They were rediscovering these truths of God. And we have camped on less than ten years of research. Guys like Calvin that are brilliant beyond anything that I could ever begin to hope to obtain to wrote their doctrinal works with two years of salvation under their belt. Two years. So, of course, when Martin Luther describes heaven, he describes a biblical scene that he misapplies. Streets of gold. Gates of pearls. He also said little children would get candies. Of course he did. He was trying to describe something good as opposed to a purgatory where you were suffering until God finally let you out. They also described seven levels of hell. The reformers rebelled from that, but they didn't go nearly far enough because they were separated from their Jewish roots. The hope of all Israel is still the hope of Christianity today, that there will be a resurrection so, well, what about that city, right? Oh, wow. I hope I have time to get to that. Would you listen if I did? Yes. Do you promise? Yes. Hmm. Let's pick up the 44th verse here and then I'll get to that. That'd be like icing on a cake. 44th verse. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. He goes on in the 51st verse to say, You live forever. Look at this rebuke to the Pharisees in the 53rd verse. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. What is eternal life? It's a body that will never die that you are given the last day. Well, what is the last day? It's the last day of the earth? No, not at all. Psalm 78, 69, write that down. Psalm 78, 69 says this earth never ends. Not at any time, period. It's renewed, but it never ends. We call something the end of the world, right? We say, oh, at the end of the world. There is no end of this world, friends. It endures forever. There is an end of this age. In Greek, that's parasousia. It means the age of this order. There's a day when this order will pass away and all things will be in a new order. You know what the new order will be? Read Corinthians 15. It will tell you. Everything perfectly submitted to the Son of God. Everything on earth and the Son of God perfectly submitted to God. The Lord's Prayer will come true. Y'all pray with me the Lord's Prayer. Some good, strong male voice start it for me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Stop there. What was Jesus praying for? He was praying for the submission of everything on earth the way that it is in heaven so that God's kingdom, His dominion, would extend even to the to heaven. This is the whole of Christianity. And as long as our bodies are decaying and dying, there is part of this that is still out of balance. It's the very first thing that went wrong. And because of a man's fear of death, he will do many wicked things. He'll kill another human being. 
He'll do all kinds of things. And the very last enemy to be put down is death. The hope of mankind is that we are liberated from death. By the way, Matthew 5, Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, how bad would you feel gypped if the earth went away in just a few days? Good news, David! You're going to get an estate! Woo! He's going to inherit it! For 32 days. Thanks. Right? I have a brand new Lexus for you boys. Brand new Lexus! It's your inheritance! I have it for about a day and a half. Where would that be? The Bible boldly declares this earth will never end. It will be remade. Your life will never end. Jesus said it. If you begin to die to your will now and live to His, your life will never end. You may taste death for a moment, but you will never taste second death. You will never be put in a lake of fire. You'll live on this earth forever in a glorified body. It's amazing when you get close to this hope how all of your eschatology begins to straighten out, but that's a whole other argument that I just don't want to have today. Let's talk frustration for a second. You all frustrated with me? All right, well, let's talk about frustration in the earth then. Romans 8. I want you to hear this. I want you to hear everything I say, but that's a habit I have. I figure it's better than amen. Preachers go, amen, amen, and that's uh, like a breather, a place to pause. But I hear preachers say, and she went to an abortion clinic, amen. You know, and I'm like, no, no, not amen. That means so be it unto God. No, we need to be careful what we use as filler, right? So I just say, I want you to hear me. Not filler. Romans 8, starting in the 18th verse. Listen to this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Why? Are there not sons of God walking around there? Of course there are. They're believers. But it's obscured because we look just like the rest of dead humanity. There'll be a day it'll be revealed. You'll be sparkling and glorious. You will have a glorified body. All the prophets talk about this. We just don't know because we don't read it. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the One who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The creation itself is full of frustration. The best show I've seen on TV in years, the planet Earth, right? But even while you're watching this glorious, beautiful ball of Earth, we have wolves chasing one tiny little goat-like thing. And you are hoping with all of your heart it gets away, right? Except my boys are like, get him, get him. He's got to eat too, Dad. He's got to eat too. It's frustration. It hurts you to watch it. This is why the prophets prophesied about a day when the lamb and the lion would lay down together. God would liberate from the earth this frustration. And this is our hope. It's what we're waiting for. You'll never bury another baby. You will never have to watch the people you love grow old and weak. Like me every day. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons. What is this? Come on, somebody else read it. What is it? What are we waiting for? 
the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection of the dead. In what sense are you saved right now? You're destined to be saved. It's the same that Gabe just bought a house, right? Did you hear how I say that? Gabe bought a house. That's really a fiction, isn't it? Does Gabe own that house when we say that? He owns, he owns a giant debt on it. He's got about 350 some odd more pounds to it. And then he will own it. When we say we are saved, what we're saying is, I am on the right track. I'm destined. I'm waiting for that redemption of my body. This is the hope. Why on Easter then do we get so excited? Because there is a human being who has made it. You see all the frustration in the earth and you don't see everything subject to Him. Yet, you can see Jesus. Here's a human being who is in the presence of God, glorified, never tasting death. And that guy promised, if you listen to me, if you follow the way that I walk, I will give this to you. It's like the minute mile. It's not at all, but that's the best example I can think of. Can't be done. Can't be done. Everybody who tries fails, fails, fails. One guy does it and they go, it can be done. And that one guy has brought many sons to glory, so to speak. We can see in Jesus there is hope. These bodies can rise. So, but what about all the others that died? Like Lazarus and was right. What about that guy who touched Elisha's bones and was raised? <laughs> they died again. Jesus will never die. And He can give you a life that will never fade, but it starts now with the decisions you make here. The redemption of our bodies. Look at verse 24. Next time you read a book, whether it was written by somebody who has more degrees than I have fingers on my hand or not, and they tell you the hope is something else, what does this verse say? 24. For in this hope we were saved. In what hope? The redemption of our bodies. Oh, the glorious appearing. Oh, the rapture. It's not what he said. He said the redemption of our bodies. Let's adopt some biblical language instead of fairy tales that make us feel better. You want one more? Yes. One more. Is it okay to lie in church? If I say one more, does that mean one scripture? Does it mean one book? What does it mean? Because this is one contiguous revelation from God. I'll leave that purposely ambiguous and we'll know in the rear view mirror when we look back on it what I meant. <laughs> Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews 2. I haven't begun to scratch the surface. It's the one Sunday morning I don't have to study. Right? This is the message that's in me. And yet all of my study was, Lord, how on earth do I narrow this topic down? How do you... This is like asking what is the meaning of the universe and being asked to give a one... Word answer. Jesus, that's a good one word answer. That usually works in church. Y'all in Hebrews? In Hebrews 2. I want you to hear this. Look at verse 5. There's more filler. <laughs> it is not to angels that He has subjected the world, the world to come. Wow, the world to come. That's the new order of things. And which we are speaking, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that was not subject to him. Yet, at the present time, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels now crowned with glory, honor, because He suffered death so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists 
should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. You don't see everything perfectly submitted to God. But you do see Jesus, the very first human being, the first fruits, who raised on the feast of first fruits, whole another message, held out there to show, here's one perfect one, and there'll be a whole bunch more in the field just like this. Just wait. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Look at verse 14. I've got to move on quickly. Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their, their humanity so that by His death He might destroy Him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. goes on to talk about being held in slavery all of your life because of fear of death. What is the Easter message? There's a human being in the Godhead. He so perfectly represents God that He's declared to be God with power. And you can be just like Him. That almost sounds blasphemous to say, doesn't it? If not, it's very biblical. God will seat you in His stead with Him on His throne because you are hidden in Him if you follow His word and obey His command, which was the Great Commission. This is the hope for which we live. This is what we hope to be found worthy of. Hebrews 6 says, I'm not going to lay for you again the elementary teachings of the church. Third one, the resurrection of the dead. Nowhere in there going to heaven. Nowhere in there a rapture. Resurrection of the dead. Elementary teaching. He said, hey guys, you've tasted of the power to come. You ever wondered why we get sick? We're not in the age to come. We've just tasted of it. I love the doctrine out there that teaches that you don't get sick if you're in Christ. You can test that doctrine. Are any of those guys still alive? Amazing. The seventh chapter of Hebrews says that Jesus was declared to be a high priest in heaven atoning for your sin. And it wasn't because of his lineage is because his life was indestructible. He's the only guy that is qualified in that way. First Peter, the second chapter, verses 1 through 5 teach that you are being built into a spiritual house. You are being built into a dwelling for God. Did you want to hear about the kingdom of God coming to earth? Because we could close with that. You know my favorite chapter in all the Bibles, Corinthians 15. Let me sum it up for you. He says, Jesus is raised. We'll be like Him. But first, we have to put every enemy under God's feet. And then in the end, when everything's perfectly submitted, Jesus turns to the Father and said, I've done it. And Jesus Himself is submitted to Him. Then He goes on to say, Hey, guys, I want you to know, the body that you're going to get is not like the body you have. We'll all be changed. At the last trumpet, that's a whole other message. Go find your last trumpet mentioned in the Bible. A whole lot of trumpets and problems that come before it. There is always suffering before glory can be revealed. Always. Every time. No matter what TV preachers say. Suffering comes before glory. And the greater the suffering, the greater the glory. That's just the way that it works. Then he says, Then will come the true the saying, Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? This is the hope of Israel that they were waiting for. But in the book of Revelation, I want to talk to you about the dwelling of God with men. We're closing here. Revelation 21. Tell me when you're there. This is worth hearing. You probably won't hear it anywhere else, and you may not like it, may not fit with what you think, but it's what you're going to get. Then I'll feed you afterwards. That'll make you like me again. The hope of Christianity is what? Throughout the Bible, we are told we are God's temple. 
We are the body of Christ. I just told you 2 Peter 1-5 through says that you are living stones being built into a dwelling for God. Jesus talked about His Father's house having many rooms. Royal dwellings is what the word is. And if it wasn't so, He would have told you. This is because when each one of you is what Jesus is, a glorified human being, we join together and form the dwelling for all of God's presence. God can't be contained, and yet He chooses to dwell inside of His people. What you have now is a taste. What we will have is the fullness of God in the way that Jesus had it. How awesome will that be? He's our King. We're His people. He earned it. We inherited it. That's how that will work. Listen to this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Same language speaks about you when you got saved. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. What was the new Jerusalem prepared as? Bride. Have you ever been called a bride before in the Bible? Bride of Christ, right? Oh, watch. Look how clear this gets. Where was it coming down from? Heaven. Heaven. The clouds of heaven. Where was Jesus coming from? Clouds of heaven. Where do His people meet Him? In the air? In the clouds. This is a vision of the church assembled in the air called the Bride of the Lamb and also, you'll find out today, called the New Jerusalem. The city that the Reformers talked about as heaven is you. Watch this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and the liars... Their place will be the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Hear this carefully. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. What have you been taught the bride, the wife of the Lamb is? The body of the Christ. What did he say, come, I'll show you? The bride. Watch this. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain, great and high. Always happens on the same mountain and showed me the holy city, the Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like all of those descriptors. Gates of pearl, twelve of everything, everywhere. Foundations, twelve of them with the names of the apostles. All of those things is describing the dwelling of God called the city of God. And you know what it is? It's you. The reason the twelve foundations have the name of the twelve apostles is the message they were entrusted with that has been bearing fruit is the foundation of God's building. And all of those precious stones and precious metals are what He spoke to me about when I started this church. They're you. You are the building materials for God's dwelling on the earth. This is a glorious inheritance. 
we will be the very things on the earth that show God's power and presence. The same way when you look at Jesus now, that's what represents God's power and presence. Everything in this city is made of something precious. You know what else? Everything in this city is measured by a multiple of 12. God's government on the earth is always represented by 12. You know what man's government is always represented by? 10. 10 kingdoms under the Antichrist, 10 fingers and toes on men, 10, 10, 10, 10. Isn't it interesting that the dominant measurements in the world until the last 50, 70 years were all based on 12? But there's a new system coming in there based on 10. Wow. Even the creation itself speaks this message. Now, I've given you a lot today. I've given you more than probably most of you wanted. But what I hope, if nothing else, you get, the hope of Christianity is the resurrection of the dead. And today what we celebrate is it has happened for one. He's glorified. The only glorified human being said to stand in God's presence, the representative of God. Actually God Himself too. What a miracle that is. And that is our hope that we will be like Him. The last part of Corinthians 15 that I wanted to share with you is that if we bore the image of Adam who is of the dirt, we will certainly bear the image of Jesus who is made of the substance of heaven. That is the promise of Christianity. So we can look forward to the day when there are no more tears, when there are no more earaches, when my son's not about to throw up during worship. We can look forward to those days. That is our hope. It's nice to say we've tasted of them now. It's foolish to say we've got all we'll ever get. The thimble that you've had now. What you get will blow the doors off this body and it will be glorified. Stand up in that hope.